Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 1st, 2015. This is episode 1547 of the Survival Podcast. And it's April Fool's Day and... Uh, I guess this would be the seventh April Fool's Day that we've had come and go since I started doing the Survival Podcast. I think we're hitting our eighth year this year, but we didn't have one the first year. Um, so seven April Fools in a row with no April Fools from Jack. And we are not going to break that trend this time. I keep threatening to pull one on you someday. Maybe I will. I even have a good one planned. I just have never gotten around to it. Anyway, before I uh, get into today's show, which is going to be about blackberries, muscadines, cider apples, and bush cherries, but really more about muscadines than anything else, uh, I want to go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, by sponsoring the show. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. The very first company to step up and offer to sponsor the show. They did so so early in the show's development that I actually said no. I said I'll take you at some point, but right now I can't give you a return of investment. Uh, about six months later, they still wanted in the door, and I felt I had a program built up that would work for a sponsor, so I brought them on board. They've been with us ever since. They've never, never even considered leaving. Um, they're just absolutely one of the best sponsors you could ever work with. And again, they've been here since the beginning. So consider that when uh, you're deciding whether or not uh, to, to, you know, when you're deciding something to buy something for your preps, have a sponsor that loyal, consider giving them some of your business. They'll also give you a great discount. They have a discount buyers club. It's $50 one time, 49 bucks actually. So you buy that and you get discounts from Safe Castle forever. But if you're a member of my support brigade, which is $50 a year, by the way, you get their membership for free. So effectively that benefit pays for your first year of MSB all by itself. They're just a great group to, to work with. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Bulk Ammo is the company that I go to when I want ammo in bulk. When I say I want a bunch of it, I want it now, I go there. I, they ship so fast that it, it, it's probably more likely if I want a bunch of ammo that I can order it and get it here before I can make the time to go somewhere and buy it myself. And they have great pricing and a great selection. If you give them a chance, you'll see what I mean by that snap your neck around uh, shipping. It's it's not quite like this, but sometimes it almost feels like I clicked order and then the UPS dude's at the door. It, it almost seems like that. It's not Again, it's not that fast, but man, it's just faster than you would expect. Check them out today at BulkAmmo.com. They also do a discount for members of the Support Brigade, so check your benefits section. On that, if you're not an MSB member, please consider becoming one. You can help support the show and make sure that we're here for you long term and can stick around. Uh, it is how I pay the bills through the Members Support Brigade. I try to make it a win-win-win situation. I have people that give discounts. They win by getting business they wouldn't have. You guys get discounts that pay for your membership. If you buy stuff in this industry, I'm telling you, my discounts more than make up the cost of the membership, and I get a sustainable business. So a three-way win is, is, is something you don't see a lot anymore. Uh, I believe that's the way to do things. That's how I've built the MSB. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, 
or a first responder like EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, active duty or prior service, either one, email me before you join TSPC in the subject line. TSPC service discount is the best way to go. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences is all I need. Uh, no photocopied ID cards or anything like that are required. Um, in fact, I would prefer you didn't do that because it puts a liability thing out there. So just one or two sentences about your service. I'll get back to you with a discount. Do that before, not after you join. Everybody else, just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and you can sign up there. Remember, I do take PayPal online. I also take check, cash, money order, uh, silver, and barter. Uh, if you want to barter something, though, get in touch with me in advance about it. Uh, you can barter, you can send to me, and uh, I'll work out a deal with you there. Or if you want to pay with Bitcoin, there's a button on the members page to pay with Bitcoin as well. Um, with that, let us look at the year that was the episode, the year 1547. <laughs> Boy, you just you just read the title of this one and think, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The first one we have is the best government money can buy. The next one we have is treason and the two witness rule. And then we have Ivan and Anastasia, a terrible love story. Uh, Ivan is Ivan the Terrible here. I'm going to read Treason and the Two Witness Rule, though. I just have some thoughts on this one. With the passing of King Henry VIII, I think that's the guy you always see with the turkey leg in, in, in comedies, right? And the secession of his son, uh, King Edward VI, Parliament has decided to correct some excesses in the previous laws. The Treason Act of 1547 now requires two witnesses to convict a person of treason. The law remains in effect in the United States through its Constitution, Article 3, Section 3. It reads as follows, No person shall be convicted of treason unless the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. Um My take by Alex Shrugged. Even though King Henry VIII passed laws stating that a law could not be revoked, the Parliament could circumvent the law by changing the rules of evidence, thus making it more difficult to convict someone of a crime with particularly onerous penalty. Judaism uses this method to avoid convicting people of certain capital crimes, placing conditions so difficult to meet that one would have to be committing suicide by a jury of one's peers in order to gain a conviction. President of the United States should never say that he will not enforce a law that encourages disrespect for the law. The proper way is to pass legislation that changes circumstances under which law is applied, repeals the law, or through jury nullification. Not sure I completely agree. If you made me president, if you made me president, and I wanted to repeal certain laws because I found them unjust and unconstitutional, but I couldn't do it because I couldn't gain the cooperation of Congress. I would make those laws unenforceable by any and all means necessary. I would, there would never, if, if I became president of the United States, I would make it almost impossible for anyone to be put in prison, prison over freaking marijuana. I, I find it one of the most detestable, and again, this is, I'm a guy that doesn't smoke pot. I don't want to. I don't even think it's a good idea, but if you do, I'm not going to get in your way. But I find it absolutely detestable in land of the free, home of the brave, that we will kidnap somebody, which is what arrest is, kidnap and hold hostage. That's what jail and prison is. Um, with the you know presumed legitimacy of the state over the possession, consumption, or sale of a plant. I find it to be just disgusting. It's one of the many things that I find disgusting. It's just the first one that, that sprung to mind. So if, if I had any complaints about President Obama's stance on marijuana, he hasn't gone far enough. I don't expect him to. I expect him to do whatever the people in power tell him to do. 
I think the legalization of marijuana you're seeing happen and the decriminalization of marijuana you're seeing happening is both a popular movement, and I also think it has a lot to do with vested interests that want it done in a very slow-staged manner so that they can capitalize on it and make a shit ton of money off of it, try to make sure that they have as much control over it as possible. I don't know. I'd say the days of GMO cannabis are probably not that far into our future. I don't really know how I got off on that, but that's that's where I'm at. But uh, two-witness rule. Ugh. You know, I think that even though that's the case, that there's probably been con people convicted of treason without the two-witness rule or convicted of other crimes because they committed treason and acts of treason. So the state always has this um, Swiss Army knife of ability to steal a person's liberty or honestly murder a person. And again, what we're seeing is the attempt of one ruler to pass a law that limits what can be done in the future and that failing. Because, And, and this is actually more important that you understand why this is the case than that it's the case here. So check this out. If I pass a law that is not something like a constitutional amendment that, amendment that takes you know a ratification of another amendment to change, anything short of that, No matter what I do to limit the next government, the next government can use whatever power it has to undo what I did. Okay? And, I mean, that's just flat out the truth. And, and, and the, the reason that's important to understand is because what it means is that any government will use whatever power it has to grant itself more power. So no matter how limited you make a government, it will always turn into a monstrous beast. There is no sufficient limitation of a government to prevent government from using government to make more government. Government is self-propagating. It will use, if you give it an inch of power, it will give that, it will use that inch to create two inches. It will then use that two inches to create four. It will then use that four inches to create eight. It will use the eight to create 16. And we all know how that logarithmic curve grows when you double something over time. Well, we passed the hockey stick of government power doubling over time a long time ago. As government power doubles now, it almost is to the point where it begins to become ridiculous and may begin the, the fourth turning of self-collapse. Hopefully, if it does, there won't be a vacuum that will result in something worse, but a bunch of people switched on to individual liberty to turn it to something better. History has shown that's seldom the case. My take by Jack Spearco. Okay, with that, let's talk about happier things. Today's show, again, is titled Of Blackberries, Muscadines, Cider Apples, and Bush Cherries. Um, doesn't sound very survival-y, does it? Well, when I'm drinking a blackberry mead, um, munching on an apple, and spreading a little bush cherry jelly on a piece of toast, and you're starving to death, it might look pretty survival-y then. That's all I have to say, especially when I'm using mostly wasted space to do the majority of this. I'll mention cider apples a bit because they kind of fit into the whole thing, but uh, today's show is going to be mostly about muscadines and muscadine varieties that I've Uh, selected and, and, you know, what is a muscadine? Why would you grow a muscadine? Um, what, what are the requirements when you're growing muscadines? What do you have to do? What do you have to do? What should you not do, etc.? Some people would tell you that muscadines really aren't a grape. The, the stuff we buy in stores and the stuff that, you know, really expensive wines are made out of, etc., are grapes. 
That's not true. They're not the same um, species of grape. Uh, muscadine is Vetus rotundifolia, right? Is the the genus and species. Uh, Vetus, though, uh, being the the same uh, genus that most or all grapes are underneath the Vetus. It's the rotundifolia that, that separates uh, the lineage of the muscadine. The muscadine is something that is for you southern folks, okay? It's a southern tradition. And when I say southern, I mean even into like Virginia, etc. Uh, but it is really not the best thing to be growing in more northern climates. It's a, it's a southern species. It's actually native to the south parts of North America. And it's one of the main reasons that you would want to grow it, given that it's a native species to our continent and to certain biomes of our continent that means that it's adapted and all of the named varieties that have been bred and, and Isons is where I get most of my grapes and specifically my muscadines from in Georgia um, has done a lot to develop many of the the muscadine varieties that are out there today and the ones that I'm going to talk about um it, those adaptations in that breeding has really just been selective breeding So this vine produces something I like. This vine produces something I like. Let's do a controlled pollination, plant that seed, and see what we get. And then we look at that grape and we go, okay, yeah, that's something that's really special. Now I can start cloning it. And, and that's pretty much what's been done is selective uh, seed planting and then cloning because cloning a grapevine is one of the easiest plant propagation things that you can do. Um, they are very likely to strike well or put on roots uh, when done as softwood or even hardwood cuttings. So um, it, it's been a it's been a kind of a, a slow process though. There's not a lot of people that have really gotten big into it. There's a couple of university studies, and again, Isens is probably the best uh, private organization that's developed named varieties, but it's not really caught on in the country to the point where there's a huge commercial market for it. And part of that has to do with what a muscadine is like when you eat it. It's not that they taste you know, poor quality or anything, but to my knowledge, all of them are seeded. And if you go to your grocery store, you'll see the majority of grapes in grocery stores are seedless. So that already puts a strike against it. The next is that the skin of muscadine is quite thick and tough. And there are some named varieties where they've, they've bred thinner and more edible skin onto the grape, uh, the muscadine. But generally speaking, a muscadine grape, you can almost pop it. It's like Concord grapes or another grape that does this, where you can actually push the grape right out of the peel. And, and, and a lot of times that's probably the best way to eat a muscadine is to not eat the skin with it, unless it's, again, one of the named varieties with a thinner skin that's more palatable. Some of the wild muscadines, the skin's really thick. It's not going to hurt you. You can eat it, but it's a little bit tannic, and it's thick. And then you've got this kind of like little plum-looking thing now, like a peeled plum is what it almost looks like, and there's a seed in there. So the American consumer that just wants to pop stuff in their mouth and eat it or put it in a salad and doesn't want to do a lot of work with it, has you know, moved toward the table grape, uh, Thompson's and Red Flame and things like that. So it's kind of had a strike against it there. And then if you've ever had a muscadine wine, the majority of muscadine wines that you'll drink are very sweet tasting. Um, they're not something that's generally palatable uh, to people that like the wines that we're more accustomed to, like Chardonnays and Cabernets. 
Um, they, they tend to have a lot of residual sugars in them. I personally believe that that doesn't have to be the case. I personally believe that you can attenuate with proper yeast, muscadine, out to a much drier uh, wine. There's absolutely no reason that that should not be possible. Uh, I've looked into it, and it's not like there are sugars that are non-fermentable in muscadines. They're just generally fermented with lower attenuating yeasts. And that means that a certain alcohol level is reached. The yeast is kind of, I'm tired, man. There's too much alcohol in here now. I'm worn out, and I'm done, and I quit. And they leave that sweet bouquet of a wine, which is traditional with muscadine because the original muscadine wines were made without the addition of any pitched yeast. So it was done with a wild yeast that coexists with the muscadine grape. If you, if you crush muscadines and put them in the right temperature and environment and, and screen out stuff so nothing else gets in there, it'll ferment. There's wild yeast on the, on, the, on the grape skins, and it'll ferment. It's not a very aggressive high attenuation. So when I say attenuation of yeast, that's how far it will take things. It's just the, without getting into venting and brewing and all that, how far will it go before it quits? Okay, How long will it last? So I think that a big reason that most of your muscadine wines that you would buy in a store are sweet is they're sold as... You know, what people would think of as classic mustard-eye wine, kind of a low alcohol comparative to, you know, a Cabernet or something like that, and quite a bit of residual sweetness in them. So this hasn't done much for muscadines in the country as well, because any sophisticated wine drinker that pours this is going to go, this tastes like somebody took uh, a decent white table wine or a decent red table wine, dropped a spoon of sugar in it, and mixed it up. And it just isn't, and there, there's a, a thinness to it. So I think... That can be simply done with higher attenuating champagne-style yeasts. And that's something I'm definitely going to, to try for my own use. Muscadines are also great for jelly and juice and other things like that. And that's where they tend to do well, is jellies and juices and farmer's markets and cottage industry products and things like that. And there's a fairly large industry in muscadines, but it doesn't come close to the wine grape industry or the table grape industry And it's because even though it's easier to grow a muscadine in much of the country, even though it requires a lot less inputs, even though it requires uh, a lot less concern about diseases and things like that, it doesn't have the broad market appeal that guarantees the high return for a successful year with grapes. So it's really perfectly suited to the small grower or the home grower. And it is uber productive. Um, an average muscadine vine at four years of age, so by three years you're, you're letting it bear, and by four years it's really in a full-on production, can produce 30 to 35 pounds of fruit, and some produce significantly more. But an average of 30 to 35 pounds of fruit off what's called a two-cordon system with cordons running out to 10 feet in both directions, so spanning 20 foot of trellis. And you can run more cordons off a of vine. You can run a four-cordon system. The cordon, again, is just your lateral. So you have your main trunk that comes up. You train your most vigorous. This is with many grapes you would do this way. Train your most vigorous cane up, and then you train two out as laterals. And then every year you prune back the fruiting canes, which are your, your, your new growth, to three to four spurs that will produce and, and bear for you that year because it bears on new wood. 
Muscadines bear on their 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 like a like a like a uh, like a primacane type situation. So they bear on the same year that the the the, the new growth grows. So we prune back our two year wood, and then that gives and it, there's a lot of pruning with muscadines. There's a lot of biomass that comes off of them, which is a great opportunity for the organic grower because you know with a shredder you get a whole lot of mulch out of them. Uh, a whole lot of biomass accumulation. And th that's the one big maintenance thing with muscadine is annual pruning, especially once they're mature. You let them go even one year, and you end up with a big mess, and sometimes the vine literally can grow itself into a, into a death spiral. Um, the other important thing to know with muscadines is that <clears throat> there are self-fertile and females. And many people refer to the self-fertiles as males, But it's not really accurate, okay? Um, because if we looked at something where you would really call one a male and one a female, that would be like certain kiwis. And the male vine that's necessary to pollinate the female vine, the, the male doesn't produce fruit. It only provides the pollen. Or seaberry is another example of a true male-female type of plant. The male seaberry tree or bush only makes pollen, and the female is the only thing that makes a berry. So with muscadine... What you have are self-fertile, which means they produce the pollen that's necessary for reproduction, and they produce a grape. And you have females, which require that a self-fertile uh, vine be within 50 feet of them for, for good pollination. Um, the way I've worked things out, I have primarily self-fertile varieties. I have one, two females in my mix And they will be on a fence line where there will always be a self-fertile, and then if there's a female, there'll be another self-fertile flanking it. So I'll have no pollination issues. That's one of the biggest concerns is having, uh, if you're going to grow females, having self-fertile varieties uh, in close proximity to them. In commercial vineyards, they recommend like plant a self-fertile variety every third row. So if you were primarily growing for whatever reason, mostly female varieties, and Historically, the female varieties have been better tasting, better market fruits, etc., than the, the, the self-fertile varieties. But we're at a point now where many of the self-fertile varieties are just as high quality. But in the, in the past, you might grow you know, two rows of a female variety and then a self-fertile, and then two rows of a female and then a self-fertile, just to make sure you got good pollination throughout your vineyard. Um, now, why you know, a muscadine over conventional grapes? Well, again, it's a native species, so they're extremely resilient. They're designed to grow in the south, and specifically the southeast. Heat, humidity, they don't care. They love it. A lot of climates where you get too much humidity, you get a lot of problems growing table grapes and conventional wine grapes. That's why California is like the mecca for grapes. If you've ever wondered what makes California the wine-growing state, it's, it is the only true Mediterranean climate in the United States. Cool winters that are very wet in general, and hot, dry, arid summers. So while the vines are growing and fruiting, they are in a very arid state. Even if you get some rain, it's not a lot. It, it, you never are out in California and where you just have your clothes sticking to you, like you do in like Louisiana, Okay, if you know what I'm saying there. Even when it's hot, it's not that sticky, humid hot. Many of the diseases that infect grapes affect grapes mostly in that humid environment. 
So commercial vineyards in human environments are difficult to maintain without a lot of chemicals. And then there's also something to the flavor and the character of the wine that comes off of the grapes growing in the right climate for the grape. So if you want grapes and you don't live in a, you know, a place with, the, with a dry summer um, or with a lot of humidity at different times, then muscadines are a great way to go. Again, they're also a, in a region, you know, they're regionally adapted because this is their region. And they do very well with organic fertility. So if you don't want to use chemical fertilizers, every supplier of muscadines that gives you instructions when you plant them tells you to use 10-10-10 fertilizer. Uh, specific poundages of applications and then going into a maintenance every year once the vine is mature uh, with 10-10-10. Using... A little bit of bone meal, a little bit of blood meal and compost, they will do fine. So they lend themselves toward organic or permaculture style production. So that's another reason to consider them. Um, I'd like to talk to you about some of the varieties of muscadine that I've picked. Tell you a little bit about them. I, I by no means consider myself an expert. Um, but the first variety that I picked is called magnolia. Now, muscadines generally come in black, bronze, and red. And I don't think I have any reds in my uh, order with Isons that I'm waiting on right now. Um, but the magnolia muscadine vine is a self-fertile variety. That means it doesn't need a pollinator. Medium-sized fruit. It's good quality. Very productive. Uh, the vine is an excellent uh, muscadine for white wine. It's cold-hardy and disease-resistant. Uh, and it has a, a mid-season ripening fruit. So I try to spread out my ripening, so I have something coming in throughout the whole season. So this is a mid-season, and it, it is a 15% sugar uh, muscadine. So now that varies. There's, you know, there's certain types of cultivation. A muscadine may produce more sugar or less, but the average for this, so when I give you a sugar you know, percentage, this is an average based on standard cultivation methods, 15% sugar. So that gives you a lot to work with if you're into the fermentation thing. It also gives you quite sweet juice if you want to use it for juice, and it gives you a lot to work with as well as a, a, you know, something you'd make a jelly or fruit cobbler or something like that out of. But I've selected this mainly for what it can do for me from a, uh, from a wine production standpoint. Uh, the next one I picked is called Hunt. Hunt is uh, really good for jams, jellies, juice, and wine. It's very multi-purpose. It's a medium size, and it has, but the, it grows in large clusters. Muscadines sometimes grow in big clusters, sometimes more spread out. This one clusters quite a bit. Uh, it's very disease-resistant, also a cold-hardy vine, so some of you guys in the upper northern ranges may be able to grow some of this stuff. Um, it ripens in early season, so this is an early producer to balance out a mid-producer. 17% sugar, about the same again. And um, this one actually, though, is a female variety. It has to be planted within 50 feet of a self-fertile variety. So, you know, we got Magnolia and Hunt. And then I have one called Tara. Now, Tara, you would think that must be a female because it's got a girl's name. Well, remember, there's no males. Uh, self-fertile and, and female. Now, this one is self-fertile. Um, it produces a good, uh, good size quality fruit. It's excellent for all uses. It's also an excellent pollinator. Uh, so this is a good cell, uh, cell fertile variety to put with your females, which is part of why I picked it. It's very highly disease resistant 
and it has a very uniform ripening. So it tends to have all of its fruit become ripe at the same time, which if you're doing things for you know either jelly or wine or something, it's good to have a certain variety kind of all ripen within a week or two of each other so you can get that large quantity in and get things done. Um, 17% sugar again. So these are all about the same amount of sugar up to this point. Uh, but this is again is a bronze muscadine. So bronze, you know, we think of our grapes as green grapes in the stores. Muscadines don't really have a green. If it's green, it's not ripe yet. It's a, it starts to turn just a little bit rosy on it into a, a bronze color. And some of the best muscadines are bronze. That's why I have a lot of them. The next one I have is called Late Fry. Um, it's a variety uh, for the late season, as the name would indicate. It's bronze and it's self-fertile. So this is another good one for pollinating your other grapes. It produces really delicious fruit because it's the 20% sugar. Think about that. A grape that's 20% sugar. Um, it's large in size, very vigorous. It has high. It's a very high-yielding vine. Um, it is a improved variety of, of something called Granny Val, which is an older variety, uh, but it doesn't produce as, as large clusters as the Granny Val vine did, but it produces a, a improved flavor. It's, again, another cold hardy. This one specifically has been bred to have thinner skins, so if you're wanting a variety that you can eat out of hand, this is a good one for that. Uh, it ripens, again, late season. If you get an early frost, that might be a good, you know, may not be a good idea for you. So this is going to be a place where you want to make sure you're in a long growing season to grow this one. Um, but in the end, you may just simply lose some of your production. This also is a patent protected variety under an ISIN's patent. I'm going to talk more about why that maybe doesn't concern me that much here in a bit. Uh, next up, I have one called Cowart. Cowart is a self-fertile variety that produces fruit with excellent flavor. Large clusters of medium fruit. Uh, muscadine vine produces fruit that has another edible skin variety. So the Cowart is, an, is a, if you want a black variety to eat out of hand, is a, is a very good one. You don't have to worry about the peels being too thick. Uh, again, cold hardy and disease resistant. It ripens early season and a 17% sugar. So this is another early variety. So you can see I've kind of spread out between early, mid, and late season varieties. That helps spread out the pollination. That helps spread out the production, etc. Cowart is a very old variety, and it was at one time protected by a patent. But that patent has expired long ago, so it's now an open variety for, for cultivation. So even many of the varieties that I'm planting now that are patent-protected They are within, you know, 10 years or less, many of them, of having their patent expire. Well, I'm not going to have full-on production from them for another four years anyway. So by the time they get into that, we may be getting to a point where most of what's in the ground we can propagate for resell. And there may just be a few varieties that have more recent patents. But in general, you're usually looking at 20 years for patents on plants varieties. And at that point, they become available to reproduce. And this is something you should always research because many times companies aren't stupid. They'll just leave the little note in their catalog, patented and under patent variety, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, is that patent still enforceable? 
Now, never get yourself into hot water with this. Don't go out being defiant and stupid and, you know, starting a fight in an industry where there's very few fights. This is the, this is a non-Monsanto world for now. Um, but if a pro, if, if a company claims a patent is in existence, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's enforceable. So if you're ever in a, a situation where you're thinking, man, this thing seems like it's been around a long time. Check out the patent and, and see when it ceased being in, enforceable or when it will become unenforceable. Uh, a lot of times with you know selecting varieties, if you've got something that's going to lose its patent in four or five years, by the time you're wanting to, like, to take cuttings or grafts off of it anyway, you're into a point where that patent is no longer an issue. That's something a lot of people don't think about. Next up today is Supreme. Supreme is uh, one of the best and biggest muscadines you can get. It's a black muscadine, very heavy producer, large clusters, and it has what's called a dry scar. And what that means is when you pick it, the place where the stem goes in stays dry. It doesn't leak any juice out, so it packages well. Uh, the Supreme Muscadine, has, because of that, has a long shelf life. It's also another one with an edible skin and very disease-resistant. This is one of the most popular uh, black muscadines grown in commercial vineyards for all of those reasons. It has a tendency to overcrop, though, so you might have to thin fruit on this one. 22% sugar. This was developed at Ison's Nursery. It is patent protected. Um, and this is one I need to check into when this patent expires because I've seen this around for quite a while. I'm not sure when the patent expires, but I would, I would imagine... Um, Somewhere in my lifetime, for, for sure. In fact, this is a good teaching moment, right? So this is exactly what I was talking about. I paused the recording for a second to look this up. I, I felt like this thing's been around forever. So right here, I'm sitting on Ison's website. Patent protected number 7267. Note, this is a female variety that must be planted within 50 feet of a self-fertile variety in order to produce fruit. So I didn't mention that's a, um, so, uh, it's a it's a female variety. But see, it says right here, patent protected. Oh, God, I can't do it. Well, um, I looked up on the University of Georgia College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences uh, some information about the Supreme Muscadine, comparing it to Fry. And here is what it says. It says, cultivar, flower type female, berry color black. Year introduced, 1988. Ding, ding, ding. Variety protection equals patent expired. Patent expired. Those of you working with plant propagation as part of your business mindset need to realize that this is the case. There are a tremendous number of things that still list their patent in catalogs. However, the patent on them has expired. And unless the name is trademarked as a name... It, you can produce it and sell it as what it is. If the patent is expired, but it also has a trademarked name, you can produce it and sell it named a different name that you create for it. In fact, you could even trademark your own name. But there's a perfect example of what I was talking about. Just because it says it's patented doesn't mean it's really patented. The next variety I have is called Noble. Noble is a 16% sugar. It's a, it's a black muscadine, and it's self-fertile. This has been around... Forever, It is one of the oldest named varieties of muscadines out there. And it is the quintessential 
muscadine for producing red muscadine wine. Uh, many times if you go buy a bottle of muscadine wine at a bottle shop or something like that and it's a red variety, it is noble, great, uh, noble muscadine that, that is being used. Um, for a lot of reasons. One, you know, when you hear something like 20%, 22%, sure, that sounds really good. But again, muscadines tend to be attenuated low so they have that residual sweetness and you don't, unless you're going to make use of all that sugar, you don't really want to be making wine out of a 22% grape. Uh, because it's going to leave a lot more residual sugar. So by sticking in that 16-17% range with that low attenuating yeast, you get the sweetness, but it's not completely overpowering. So that's one reason. The other reason is it's a great grape mus or great wine muscadine, and it's old, and the patent has been expired for a long time. And as easy as it is to clone muscadines, if you're putting in a vineyard, and you put in, let's say, a half acre of nobles, and they're self-fertile, your first season you're taking cuttings to put in your next acre, and, and so on and so forth. So it was very easy for many of the vineyards that wanted to focus on larger-scale production to clone and get a good quality result. It's also widely adapted. It's, it's like if you want to grow a muscadine for wine production and you're not right in the southeast where it's you know perfect ground zero muscadine world, this is one of the best ones to give a shot. Um, so it's a, it's a just a really great one to consider using if you're going to put muscadines in. The next one I have has a very similar story, except it's a bronze one, and it's called Carlos. If I was only going to put in two, and I wanted red and white, okay, red and bronze, but white wine and red wine, I would do Noble and Carlos. I mean, those would just be the, the ones I would go to. Carlos is the standard muscadine used to make white muscadine wine. Bronze cell for fertile, 16% sugar, medium-sized, good quality, very vigorous, high fruit yields, cold-hardy, disease-resistant, and it ripens early. Noble ripens a little bit later than Carlos, so you make your white wine and then your red wine. You have your harvest split out so you can focus on one and then the next. That's a big reason these guys have, you know, there's plenty of commercial muscadine vineyards that are a row of, no, you know, like a, a section of Noble, a section of Carlos, a section of Noble, a section of Carlos, because they are just so good for the purpose of winemaking. And, again, old varieties, long, they don't even bother listing any kind of patent on these things at all, because it's like, I don't even know if these ones were ever patented. Um, but if they were, I mean, these, these things go back to the 60s. And, and there's a lot of vines out there today growing them where the vines are 20, 30 years old. So it's, it's, it's really a great variety to consider for your winemaking if you're going to be doing muscadines for wine, and I can't see why you wouldn't. Um, next up, I've got, I've kind of rounded out the, the muscadines there. I am putting in some table grapes and some more conventional wine grapes uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one wine grape that I'm putting in is called Cynthia. And Cynthia is a, 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 a purple-blue you know, grape uh, for making wine similar to Cabernet. It's actually called the Cabernet of the South. Uh, it's got a good medium body taste, a little bit of oak and spice hint to it. So I'm putting that in mainly as a, a true wine grape. Uh, so we'll be putting in some Cynthia. I'll also be putting in some Thompson seedless grapes. These are the ones you see in every supermarket, the green ones we talked about in the beginning, because that's what Dorothy likes to eat. 
And that's pretty much the only reason I'm putting them in, because Dorothy likes to eat them. I don't know how well they'll do here, but with all these other grapes I'm putting in, since she likes them, I'll give it a shot. We'll see if it works. I'm also putting in some Flame Red, which are the standard red grapes that you see at your grocery market, because I like to eat those, and I think red and green grapes in a salad look cool. So we'll see how they do. Both of them are sold a lot around here in the box stores, so they should be at least reasonably acceptable for the climate. We shall see. I have another true wine grape I'm putting in called a Black Spanish Bunch Grape. This is specifically a wine grape. It's a juicy grape, blackish blue skin, good for juice, jelly, and wine. It is a heavy and regular producer. It's resistant to something called Pierce's disease, which is like death sentence for your grapes. And especially as you get in a little bit more humid climates, it's something that, that is more predominant. And another thing that's really a problem for grapes in more humid climates is mildew. And black Spanish is very resistant to mildew. It's probably the best variety for growing in the deep south due to its disease resistance. The wine produced is similar to like a Merlot or Cabernet. Ripens in August to September um, and is good from grow growing from, grown, growing from grow, uh, zone 6 to 10. So very widely adaptable. So if you're looking for a, a wine grape that's not a muscadine, a true wine grape. Um, this is one of those ones, if you have trouble growing certain things, you're, you're far more likely to be able to get this to work out for you. Um, some other stuff that we're putting in along with this, I have a ton of Triple Crown Blackberry. So my plan is, everywhere that a muscadine goes, generally speaking, you train your cane up, and then you go out 10 feet in each direction, so they take up 20 feet. I have a feeling with my shallow soils and things like that, that's a bit optimistic, and I'd like to get more vines in anyway. So I am going to probably train my vines on 16-foot centers. So you'll have a cane coming up, and then two cordons going out eight feet in each direction. Underneath the canes, spaced evenly out from the trunk center, I'm going to put two triple crown blackberries under every single one of them. Here's why. The Triple Crown Blackberry does most of its growing and fruiting early. It's an early producer. And by the time it's, it's fruited and done, it's just when the muscadines are really putting their leaves on. So it, it, the, the blackberry's not going to get that shaded out in early spring when it needs a lot of sun. It's not going to be, and this first year I'm going to have to be kind of loving on them. It's not going to be happy sitting out there in the blazing sun all year long when it's growing its, its canes for next year and what have you. So the first year I got to take care of it and, and, and make, you know, if I have some losses, replant or whatever. But by the second year when those canes are up, you will have that kind of canopy over top of them at about, my fence is about five and a half feet up. So that those cordons will be putting out all that leaf. And it'll be giving those blackberries a rest during the hottest part of the day when the sun's straight overhead. So it's a function stacking. So normally people just, muscadines are done. We've got muscadines and blackberries. There's another reason for the choice of blackberry. Blackberry has many of the same pests, like leaf miners, etc., that the grapes do. So you're planting two things together that are affected by the same pests. That seems like a, a bad idea. Here's why it's a good idea. The pests are what attract the predators. The blackberry leafs out earlier and produces earlier and draws in your predator insects for those specific pests early in the season. 
by the time the pests are under control, but yet, you know, there's, there's this whole kind of handoff thing going on, and the grapes are leafing out, the predators are already there, ooh, there's more habitat for my prey. Let me just move up from here to there and occupy the space. So we're actually staging out the predators for a long season with mid, uh, early, and late season grapes and an earlier season blackberry. The next reason is this is all part of the whole wine, mead, beer production uh, stuff. And this is where we're going larger scale. So we have all of this stuff being managed together, cider apples, blackberries, grapes, and nanking cherry, that I'll get to in a second, that all have this larger scale production. Instead of being 200 varieties spread out like most of my other stuff, this stuff's being grown far more in a production style using the edges of the fence rows across the front of the property and down the center of the property. So space that would normally produce very little now produces a significant amount. A best estimate of my muscadine production by year four will be about a thousand pounds of muscadine. Half a ton. From what would normally be considered wasted space. So the blackberry kind of occupies that space. I'm very interested in playing around with blackberry meads. Um, and blackberry beers. So that gives us, a, you know, kind of a, a real interesting fit there. The other thing I just planted 11 of these are Nanking Bush Cherry. So Nanking Bush Cherry grows about five to six foot tall, and you can prune it smaller. I planted them five foot off of the fence uh, going down the center of the property where all these muscadines are going. By pruning them at five feet, they will never shade out the muscadines that are sitting up at five and a half feet. And by the way, you know, you still got a five foot space in there. You can get the tractor through the mow, what have you. And they're kind of an open, bushy thing anyway, so some sun gets through. That also shades the blackberries from getting too much sun, because blackberries aren't edge species. They like motlet shade. So now we've got blackberry, muscadines, and wine grapes, plus we have this bush cherry. Now the bush cherry obviously lends itself to mead and beards and many other things as well, uh, in significant quantities. The other thing that's going in this year, and I probably need to go out and plant some of this stuff today, is uh, butternut squash. So I'm going to get all these vines when they come in, these grape vines, and put them in the ground. And they're going to be this little stick coming up. And the first year all you're going to do is just grow a cane to the top of the fence. That's it. Tip it off and get ready to train it next year. One stick every 16 feet. That's a whole shitload of fence doing nothing. So since there's irrigation now there for the vines for several years, this can be a massive butternut squash production. So now we're doing annuals until the perennial success into, into production. It also helps occupy that space and prevent other things from showing up that I do not want. It also will provide a pretty good screen from the western sun to help protect those poor blackberries that are going to get beat to death by that sun. So we're kind of phasing this, this in. The next thing is I might plant some, I have no idea yet, but hyssop. Um, somebody commented, I just put out another episode of the Duck Chronicles, and said they've been to a lot of vineyards where they plant hyssop with the grapes. I don't know anything about that yet, just heard about it, but I figured I'd mention it. If you know anything about that or why it's done, let me know in the comments for today's show. The other thing I'm looking for is some other low, low bushy style fruit that's freestanding. So the blackberries are going up against the fence. Right in with the muscadines so they have some support. Real simple, real easy thing to do. Um, and again, Triple Crown. Let me tell you about Triple Crown real quick. Open, open variety. 
Um, it, it produces early, large berries, it's thornless. So it's just a great variety, and it produces very, very heavy amounts. Um, you know, we're looking at probably putting in close to 100 of them in along the fence, and you're talking hundreds and hundreds of pounds of blackberry by year three or four. So this is upping that production. But I planted the Nanking five feet off the fence because the sprinklers that I'm using for irrigation sit right up by the fence. They spray about a, a five-foot to six-foot circle. So they're spaced every 10 feet, so the circles overlap. That means that I have this area about five feet off of both sides of the fence that gets irrigated now every time I run that zone irrigation. So I put the Nankings five feet away from each sprinkler head where they would get, you know, that's where it's spraying out six, six and a half feet because it's center of the circle. I would like to put something on the other side of the fence and I don't want it to get too high and shade out the muscadines. So I'm looking for another low variety of fruiting bush. Maybe I'll just do more Nanking cherry. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, the reason I decided to go ahead and do this plant is it was the best, most unique thing I could put in there. And I planted a bunch last year and the one that got the most sun fruited one year and it's got fruit on it. So I know that because my, that was my concern. This is pretty hot climate. Most of the books say this is a zone seven and below, like zone seven to zone three for Nanking Cherry. Will it work here? Yep. Bingo. In it goes. So I'm looking for other freestanding fruit bushes that can be pruned down into the four to five foot range for the other side of that fence. I thought about putting something over there like some, you know, black, lo I tons of black locust seedlings and stuff like that, but I, I don't want, I want at least to be 10 feet away from that fence before the next line of trees goes up so that we're not totally shading out the muscadines. And they want to be relatively small trees and the larger trees way to the other side of the property. So I don't know yet. To be determined. Any ideas? Throw them in today's show notes. Now, going across the front side of the property, I'm looking for like a low bush, and then I'm looking for a full-on set of trees. And trees will just plant whatever we want like we have everywhere else. Um, but this is another, this is a different unique opportunity. So the front fence faces south. So I can plant tall things on the north side of that fence, inside the fence, without shading the vines much at all. Okay, so vines on the fence, sprinklers there are going to be set five feet back from the fence. So they just reach the fence because that's a ditch outside that I can't plant anything in because the county comes through and mows it three times a year with a big giant mower. And when it needs to be mowed and, and they haven't been by in a while, I have to go out there and deal with it. So I don't want too much water out there in that ditch and I don't want to plant anything in that ditch. So just to where it just reaches the fence, that waters my grapes. Now I have a different three-zone area. Now I've got the area right where the sprinklers are, five feet off the fence, for some sort of a bush shrub-type plant, and then another five feet back, a row of full-on trees. And I might do, like, a fruit tree, a mimosa, a fruit tree, a black locust, a fruit tree and a mimosa, something like that, to start giving more diversity and variety and some more support species and opportunity. And the locust and mimosa are great trees for the bees, Locust being an early flowering tree that flowers very prolifically, and mimosa being a tree that flowers all summer long. So whenever there's a, a lack of, of stuff for the bees to work, at least that will be there. It's also far enough away that it makes the bees range the property a little bit more. Um, so again, some to be determines there. And again, full on trees on the north side, though I might 
think about that a little bit because there might be a second cider orchard going in sort of in that area in the future. On the apple orchard, just real quick, we have 35 varieties going in within the next two weeks into this fenced apple orchard. But by next season, we will have over 80 varieties of cider apples on the property. Uh, I have a whole bunch from Cuffle Creek that uh, are being grown for a year in pots to get them up to one-year whips because they were bench grafts, little baby bench grafts, and I just don't want to put them out in the field yet. And I have more than 35 coming to me this week from two different shipments. So I've already filled out past the apple orchard. I was originally going to double plant the apple orchard. Two trees in one hole, train to two sides, that type of thing. I decided not to do that, that I have plenty of place to put other apples. There's plenty of expansion over in the main food forest, what have you. So we'll work those other apples in. I also have a big space out in the front of my property uh, that I may just spend all summer sheet mulching and getting it ready for, for late fall planting of the Cuffle Creek apples that I'm growing out to one-year whips this year. Um, and that would be, so, you know, 80 to 100 varieties of cider apples on the property. So that's more of the diversity thing going on there. And hopefully, you know, we find 50 of them are, are good for the, the area. And, and if we have that, we have, we have a production-level quantity, and we can start replacing the losers with the winners. And the main product there is information. So what varieties of apple do well for cider in North Texas? And now, I don't have plans to go commercial with the production of meads and wines and ciders. But imagine the information that I'll have about southern production of unique meads and ciders. Blackberry cherry, again, uh, bush cherry, very, very prolific bush cherry. Muscadines, true wine grapes, huge variety of cider apples to work with, and all these other unique things on the property. So my hope is that I'm able to be able to come up with turnkey planting of uh, uh, plants for the production of ciders and meads in North Texas because I think this is an extensive growth market and Texas has started to make it really easy for small producers who want to produce in Texas and sell in Texas it's getting easier and easier to do that here um, and what's lacking is enough material because it's not just production in Texas the 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 all or a percentage of the ingredients have to be from Texas. So sourcing your grapes from California and bringing them to Texas is fine if you're a large producer, but if you're operating under these smaller liquor or, or, or brewers licenses and vendors licenses and, and uh, distillers licenses in the state of Texas, you have to get your supplies from Texas. So this is kind of the, the larger scale plan for that. And, you know, there's 92 acres for sale down the road. Someday, if it's still sitting there, who knows? Maybe I'll go to a bank with a business case. Uh, maybe I'll come to this audience and say, hey, are you guys interested in working with me to develop another property, Permaetho style? Who knows? With more of a production style plan. Here's what we know works. Here's how it works. Here's why it works. Here's the products. Here's the revenue. That type of thing. So we're getting kind of sophisticated there. On the shorter term, though, Nanking Cherries produces their second year. Triple Crown Blackberry produces its second year really well in its third. Your Muscadines, heavy production on your third year. Not top production, but heavy production on your third year. Um, so all of this stuff relatively quick into production uh, in an irrigated format and being very well supported within a totality of the system. So the large production scale now of Blackberry 
and muscadine and bush cherry opens up not just my personal production of meads and wines, but also a product that's sellable to our customer base for ducks. You know, we'll probably have a couple weeks out of the year where the blackberries are here. They're selling by the court. Get them while they're here, they're going to be gone. Beats anything in a store, that type of thing. So yet another opportunity for monetization. It's also an opportunity maybe to do some cool things. How cool would it be if once a year at the TSP Homestead, we did a whole get-together like I've been doing recently, but it was like the Blackberry Festival. And all we did was get together, pick and eat blackberries and make blackberry mead. And then in the next one, you drink from the last year's production. We put up a couple cases, that type of thing. That's the kind of thing that we can do. And I, I want to make my place as open to you guys as possible. That's why I've been doing more of these weekday, you know, one weekend, weekend uh, workshops. So on that note, not this Saturday because this is Easter weekend, uh, but the next Saturday, Saturday the 11th, we're doing all this, assuming that the grapevines get here from Ison's. I've sent them an email saying, dude, when are my vines shipping? If not, we can plant the cider orchard because the trees are in route right now. So the trees will be here by then. So we can plant the cider orchard and we can put in the irrigation. So this is going to be another irrigation installation workshop. Um, but the people that have come so far have had a blast. They've been wonderful. I'm going to do something a little bit different this time. So I am going to charge ten bucks, and I'll tell you why. It's not to make any money because trust me, I ten bucks ahead. If I get fifteen, eighteen people, something like that, I ain't going to make any money. Um, in food and beer, I had over two hundred fifty dollars in last week and the week before. I felt there should have been a little more. So the only reason I'm charging the ten bucks ahead is so that I can invest more in food and more in good beverage, uh, both of the non-alcoholic and the alcoholic varieties. So 10 bucks ahead, and just if you've been here before, I'll double the food, which is, you know what that means, right? So uh, I think this one, we're going to go back to the pork. I've got my new, somebody on the blog mentioned these like Wolverine-looking forks for like shredding pork and brisket and all. These things are awesome. So I'm going to smoke probably, last time I smoked two boneless pork shoulders. Uh, assuming we have good attendance coming to this one, I'll smoke four. Uh, if there's any left over, we'll send it home with people or whatever. I mean, you killed it last time. And um, I'll get a little bit more variety of beer and cider and things like that. So I'm going to charge 10 bucks. With that said, here's what I'm going to say. If you are coming as a couple, it like if you're husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, Man friend and man friend, girlfriend and girlfriend, you know, I don't give a damn about any of that. Um, anything like that, if you're a couple, it's 10 bucks for both of you. If you're bringing kids, they're free. So I, I'm hoping to raise maybe 100, 120 bucks here uh, just to, to help defray food. So tomorrow I will put out the page to register for this, and you can register for it. And, you know, I'll take up to a certain number of people and I'll shut it off like always. So hopefully, given that you're coming out to spend a day working here, nobody will be too bent about the 10 bucks. But I floated it last weekend and no one seemed to care. No one seemed to have a problem with it. And especially with the concept of it's just so I can give you guys a little bit more and justify the expense. Um, because, you know, what I said last week, it's just the brisket alone. I, I bought like a 60, the biggest brisket I could get was like a $65 brisket. And it was enough, but I felt like it was just enough. There was a little bit left over from lunch, and then we cut up some more sausage, and then you know it got devoured at dinner. And it's good when all the food's gone because nothing's wasted. But I also know that when people work hard, 
they develop an appetite and they, you know, it, it's better to feed them more than less. So that's why I'm doing that. And, and I don't think $10 prices is out of anybody's range, especially again, kids that come, they have to have a form signed, but they're free. Okay. And couples are $10. So if a couple came with two kids and that's four people, it's still 10 bucks. I, I, I can't make it more equitable than that. I will also say this. Dorothy and I have talked about this, and we think it's a great idea. This summer, we're going to do several like Saturday get-together type things. They are not going to be workshops. They are not really going to be classes. They are going to be come hang out at the pool, eat some barbecue, meet some cool people, uh, just fun days. Walk around the property if you want to, ask me questions, hang out. But more of like a TSP social event. That's just us being hosts to you. We'll probably charge a little bit of money for that so we can stock the food and the beer up. Ten bucks a head or something like that. Ten bucks a family, I guess, is the way to look at it. And, uh, you know, we'll limit the attendance to those as well. When I do those, I'm not going to say it's only for, but I will give first opportunity to the people that have come to these workshops and put the work in. It's just a thank you for, I mean, the amount of work that's happened in two of these blows me away. It blows me away that you guys come here and do all this work and then thank me for me letting you come work at my place. I, uh, I, I try to make it enjoyable. I try to do my, my best with it for you guys, and I hope it, it's really enjoyable. And I hope you learn a lot from them, and I think you do. Um, I will say, if you've been to the first two, this one's a little bit kind of more of the same, but it may have some new stuff, and it's always fun, and you get to meet a lot of great people. And I think the biggest reason to come to any of my events is not to meet me, but to meet all the other people there. And uh, so the other thing is, those of you who have been, uh, I promised you that I would tie you into the uh, the group, the Yahoo email group for people that have been to events here. Um, if you email me, I'll send you the link for that for everybody coming to this next one. When you get your instructions after you sign up, uh, it will tell you how to do that. Anyway, with that, I am going to wrap up today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I thought it was time to kind of just back up and do something just kind of fun. We've had some real serious topics lately. But even though this is fun, this is a lot of production off a fence run. This is some pipe, some sprinklers, and a fence line. Think about what that really means for taking smaller properties into larger scale production. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution.